Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Returning is Brendan Radican. He's just completed his third year of medical school at the Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine in Indianapolis. We've been chronicling Brendan's four years through medical school, and now it's time for the third installment in this series that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at the life of a medical student. And before we get to talking to Brendan, we were thinking of kind of laying the foundation a little bit of what the third year actually looks like as far as rotations. There's there's kind of core rotations that all medical students are required to take, and that makes up the majority of the third year. But within the third year and in the fourth year, to a larger extent, there's elective rotation. So one of the things we wanted to dive into is what kind of electives do people choose and how do you choose them? Right. And at least when I went to medical school in the third year uh, at Mayo Clinic, half of the year was clinical, half of it was research. So in my year, I did pathology research actually with Dr. William Edwards, uh, who wrote that famous article in the Journal of the American Medical Association called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. He was a cardiac pathologist. So for, I don't know, 20 weeks, I was working with him on research, but then uh, on, on heart disease uh, angioplasty specifically, but on the side, he was teaching me about, you know, the, the medical aspects of the crucifixion, was, which was pretty cool. So in third year, I had no electives. I just did the usual things, uh, general surgery, pediatrics, internal medicine, obstetrics, gynecology, uh, general surgery. I think that's pretty much what we had. What about you, Andrew? You know, I, I think it's interesting because we, we didn't have that same blocked kind of research requirement. We did do longitudinal research, but it was kind of one of those evenings and weekend things. Yes. So we had more official electives, both in third and fourth year. And I know I used it to kind of explore different specialties that I was thinking about going into, which one of the, the rotations that I did, I really was interested in radiology. I did a rotation in that. I also did rotations in dermatology and um, several several others, which it's nice because it gives you an opportunity to see a bit of the daily life of what those attending physicians do on a regular basis. Uh, I found it interesting that um, residency directors for family physicians, which is what you became, uh, after doing uh, internal medicine and uh, family practice in the clinic, the number one thing they recommended was doing dermatology because you see so much skin disease. It is. And that's, I, I was thinking that maybe some of our listeners are medical students or pre-med students who are thinking about what they might choose. And uh, the American Academy of Family Practice had a really good article about what your, your teachers think you should choose based on what they see. And Derm is one of the biggest ones. I know when I was in residency, Tom, you got to help me out with Derm weekly in clinic, which yeah, I know well, we're well, talking about med school, but uh, I enjoyed that a great deal. It, it's a lot of fun, uh, especially to get to do something with someone who enjoys what they're doing, and you get to see what it's lived like on a daily basis, not just in the classroom or virtually like uh, Brendan will be talking about in his interview because of COVID and all the virtual learning. Well, and speaking of COVID, I thought that was another very unique thing. I'm, I'm interested to see what Brendan has to say about it because this is really unprecedented for medical training. And one of the things I've been looking into is what the different medical schools have tried to do with their students and kind of what the students' perception of it is. Yeah, we, we did an interview with medical students early in COVID. It was like around March 21st. Uh, and, and he'll tell us, you know, what's happened since then and, and how they looked at it. Uh, I mean, you had a student with you during COVID, didn't you? I did, and a uh, really great student. We were having a great time learning a lot, and I, it's always nice for, for attending physicians to have students because it gives you a chance to kind of rediscover the, the joy and the peaking interest, you know, as you're learning things. But as soon as COVID kind of broke, um, he was actually kind of snatched up and said to go home and we're going to figure out something else for you to do because we wanted to keep keep the medical students safe. And I think there was a concern also about kind of conserving protective equipment and trying to really clear the hallways in case we do have this major surge, which we were all kind of waiting for at the very beginning. Because uh, students would be less adept than anybody at properly donning the protective equipment. 
and keeping from becoming <laughs> collateral damage in the in the COVID pandemic. Precisely, I I totally appreciate that. I it was interesting for me though to to look at some of the things that students were saying, and I I appreciate what their their perception was. Where a lot of the students interviewed by the AMA kind of felt like, man, this is what I signed up for. Can't I do like a a pandemic rotation? You know, because this in some ways is a great learning opportunity, and so balancing those two has been a challenge, I think, for most schools. Uh, yes. I mean, and students worried about a lot of things. I mean, Andrew found this New England Journal of Medicine article, which um, actually quoted some of the students, um, you know, a medical student who said that masks were taken from precaution carts hidden away in huddle spaces or workrooms. Patients were stealing them from the hospital, and we were running short. Our team, and the team would have, you know, an attending, a fellow, a resident, an intern, a fourth-year, a third-year student, and so the team started to prioritize who would go into a room based on how much protective gear they had. I mean, that sounds somewhat frightening. It, it does. And I think, you know, the medical students got to kind of see first line the, the level of, of intention that went into some of these uh, orders, you know, the, the non-pharmaceutical interventions. But it definitely is going to make for a very unique experience. I'm excited to hear about what Brendan had to go through for that. And uh, this was a great comment from a student who uh, was a year ahead of Brendan, who said, as a fourth year, as my fourth year comes to a close and internship looms, being away from patient care for so long, which turned out to be three, three and a half months, it's not an ideal time to be rusty. And we're recording this the first week of July, which is when all the new interns start around the country. And not only are interns typically, you know, they don't know how to handle all that responsibility. For three and a half months, they haven't had that responsibility. That's a yeah. challenge. Well, and think about, you know, I'm saving the last couple to really brush up on my specialty before I get started. Oh, yeah, those have just been taken away. So you're coming in cold and flat-footed. That, yes. that is an uphill battle. And I think um, in prepping this, Andrew has a really good point he made, and that is a lot of people assume that in medical school, we got to see everything in medicine clinically. We didn't, did we, Andrew? Not at all. I That was always one of my goals. And of course, family medicine, you want to have a taste of everything. But I kind of had this assumption that part of the curriculum was you were going to see at least one brain surgery. You were going to do at least one amputation. You were going to do so many back surgeries. And in fact, everybody's experience was so different. I missed the brain surgery. I got to do an amputation. I don't do either of them right now, but I think... <laughs> patients a lot of times assume like, clearly you should know this, you're a doctor. And that's just not the case. A lot of it goes into what that individual medical school has for, for their students. Yes. So we learned all the same things in basic science here and even in the different systems. So we learned about the nervous system. They, they didn't leave out the, the kidney system or the cardiovascular system, but we only saw it clinically uh, part of the huge breadth that is medicine. So before we go to our, our break, uh, we do have our medical trivia question of the day, and the, the category this time will be acceptance to medical school. So, and the question is, what percentage of applicants to the MD schools, and those are called allopathic schools, uh, Brendan is at an osteopathic school or a DO school. So what percentage of applicants to MD schools were accepted last year? And as a bonus, second part, how many medical schools did the average medical school applicant apply to in 2019? You're going to have to wait till the end of the show for the answer. We'll be back with our guest interviewer here on Dr. Doctor in just a minute. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor for our guest interview. This time, round three. Brendan Radican has finished his third year of medical school, has lived to tell about it. Brendan is a faithful Catholic, the happy husband of Margaret, and father to three children with a fourth one in utero. He studied philosophy and pre-medicine at the University of Richmond in Virginia and accepted an ROTC scholarship and commission on graduation into the active duty field artillery. Yes, that's large-scale weaponry. After three years in the active duty army, he applied and was admitted to Marion University in Indianapolis, where he's a fourth-year medical student at their School of Osteopathic Medicine. He loves reading all things philosophical and theological and is looking forward to making, gasp, 
in income again next year. Brendan, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. <laughs> I am really happy to be back. I wish I could be with you in person, but alas. Uh, we do too. But let's review a little bit. If you had one word to describe the overarching theme of the first year of medical school, what would it be and why? Two, is two words okay? Uh, we'll take it. <laughs> I'd say basic sciences, I think. I think that's the name of the game for the first year. It's uh, really laying the foundation of all the science that I'll need to build on and apply clinical medicine to in the future. If you had one word or two to describe the overarching theme of the second year of medical school, what would it be? Okay. I, so I think it's maturation for second year. So maturation ah. here where we learn how to study the basic sciences, get really good at it, develop our skills there, and then also start to really build in some more clinical skills, you know, kind of getting that clinical gestalt. Um, maturation, I think. And then finally, year three, which you've just completed. What's the key word for that year? Art, I think, where now rather than so I'm trying to be pithy, right? It's kind of challenging to it's sum working. up the year. But I, but I think art is the key because in the first two years, you know, we're not really given any red herrings in tests. You know, sometimes there will be what we call zebra diseases, right? Those like you think, you know, if you hear something clapping along, well, is it a horse or a zebra? Well, it's probably a horse, right? Unless... <laughs> Anyways, that's what we call zebra diseases. But even when we're given zebra diseases, the question stems kind of filter out unnecessary or distracting information. But the third year, oh, man, I needed to learn not just what question to ask, but how to ask it, the tone to use, the body posture to have. I actually needed to have a physical exam skill. You know, I can't just <laughs> have somebody tell me what the heart sounds like. Um, I actually need to hear it with my ears and Anyways, art, third year. Are you, are you starting to feel more like a doctor? <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. I really am. Because I, although I, you know, recognize definitely like knowledge deficits and, you know, clinical skills gaps, but I'm getting a little gestalt going on where I can kind of tell who's sick and who's not, who, you know, what certain things mean and what they don't. Um, it's actually kind of exciting. I don't know if you can hear me getting a little bit excited, but I feel like I'm starting to actually know things now, which is, which is fun. How, how has third year been different than your previous two years as far as even flexible time or how much you need to study if you're doing it at home or the library, that type of thing? Yeah. So I have more flex flexible time third year. I don't know how unique my experience is there. But for example, the first two years, it was very much like a seven to five, you know, maybe and some five hours on Saturday or so. But third year was much more regimented, kind of like a regular work day. And then I really only had to step it up and study for the end of the month exam. So that really cut down on the like late night studying business or the night before the exam business. Um, so I think I had way more flexible time now that you when I got used to the in-house call this year. Overnight not this call? year. Not, not. Are you not, serious? Well, I did. That was the most <laughs> grueling year for me. I hardly slept. What, what are they doing to you guys? <laughs> or what aren't they doing? I think they must know I'm just too good for that, I think. And that I don't need to do it. <laughs> so I did um, labor and delivery nights, but that was just for a week. Um, I had a great experience during that too, but no, no night call. That sounds terrible. Are you serious? Oh my goodness. Andrew, <laughs> speak to me. Did you have it like that too? No, I totally had night call, but it's, it's interesting because when I did my third year, we were at a community hospital. And one of the differences is, you know, that's where a lot of people would normally work and, and you see the regular stuff a million times. A, a lot of my night call was not super crazy necessarily. Uh, a lot of it was more the bread and butter, which I really like preparing me for regular practice. But uh, now, you know, this, this brings up the whole thing about the hours restrictions and the staying up all night. Uh, how many times would, would you say, Brendan, over the last year, did you feel like you were too tired to work? 
Zero. Oh, my See? goodness. Wow. That's pretty good, mm -hmm. I think. And so there's always wow. two sides to this. And we, we were talking about this, Tom, with our, our general surgeon yes, not long we ago. Were. About, you know, there's a benefit to getting the extra experience of working 100 hours a week. Um, but there's a benefit of working 80 hours a week and sleeping so you can think straight. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> There's, there's, there's a balance there. I don't know the best one, but it, it seems like things are moving towards the being, being rested and sane. I would have chosen that, that school if that was a, an, an option, but uh, I would have thrived where you are, Brendan. Well, anyway, instead of envy, which is one of the seven deadly sins, let's go into joy. What did you especially enjoy about each of your three years? Brief with one and two, and what was especially joyful about this one? So I think for the first two years, um, what brought me the most joy was studying something that I, I truly enjoyed academically. Um, so I don't know if you two have had the experience of needing to learn something you were not at all interested in. That, can, <laughs> that is a total chore. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. Sure. that's, that's probably uh, how I would have described the first year of medical school. I'm like, I always yeah. wanted to be a doctor. I said, Krebs cycle? Who cares about this? <laughs> <laughs> so I will say I didn't spend a lot of time on the things I didn't at all enjoy. Uh, I don't know where that reflects, you know, but I loved it. Human anatomy and physiology. I just loved it. And studying it was not a problem for me. Um, I think though the double-edged sword kind of of the first and second years is although I have a lot of you know flexible time to study you know um, there's no really set metric for when I have studied enough for the ex upcoming exam and that's a really big deal especially for super important exams like the USMLE step one exam which is a super important exam for future and residency selection so if you have the time to just study and study and study and it's kind of hard to feel like the task is complete. One of the things that brought me the most joy in third year was no, going home knowing my day was done and there was nothing to do. Um, <laughs> nothing that to do. was really fulfilling because I could, I could really enter into the family life. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tom, I guess that's a good question. So, and maybe we can describe a little bit of the third year. You mentioned, Brendan, the end of the yeah. month exams. Tell, tell us about how the month was structured and what was different between each month. Yeah. So at Marion, we have, the third year is mostly made up of core medicine rotations. So we did two months of family medicine each month at a different facility. Two months of internal medicine, same. Usually one inpatient, one outpatient month for internal medicine. And then we have other core months like obstetrics and psychiatry and pediatrics. We have one elective month and then two months of surgery. So usually the two surgery months are one general surgery month and one something else. My something else was orthopedics. But that's how we do month by month. It, it, it switches like that. And at the end of each specialty, there's a specialty-specific exam. That's Very nice. Good. So it was not compared to like the first year. How many exams did you do the first year? <laughs> Every other week. It, yeah, a lot. A lot. So there's a lot less Im immediate pressure for studying, I guess. So right. And it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And Brendan uh, proposed asking him this question to show you a little about his character. He wanted us to ask him, and I can't wait to hear the answer. What were the most embarrassing or humbling moments of this <laughs> third year? <laughs> of course you can't wait to hear the answer. Um, <laughs> so I'll start with the most embarrassing, I think. So as a third-year medical student, I'm kind of, I have very limited you know, roles and responsibilities. Um, in terms of, you know, if I mess something up, it's not going to ruin anybody's day usually, right? Um, so in, I was in OB on labor and delivery, and it's frustrating to share this with all listeners everywhere, but um, do you remember in the Sandlot when Smalls is in the outfield just saying, don't be a goofus, don't be a goofus, don't be a goofus? <laughs> so here I am, I'm in the labor room just thinking like, I really want to get in there. I really want to get in the labor and delivery. 
I also don't want to mess anything up. The resident had prepped me on how to actively deliver the placenta. And I'm thinking, this is easy. This is like a medical student job. Can't mess this up. And we talked about it. She prepped me totally sufficiently. And I get in there, you know, and I'm, I'm helping the placenta come out. And out it comes just without the placenta. And there I am, like an idiot, holding the umbilical cord in my hand, kind of looking lost. And I had evolved the placental cord, um, which is a total rookie mistake. I mean, total <laughs> rookie mistake. But everything was fine. The resident went in there quick, grabbed the placenta. Everyone was great. But the most embarrassing part, I think, is that I had no responsibility, no role anywhere. And I, and I messed something up. That's the worst. <laughs> uh, well, hey, that, isn't, isn't that a big part of med students? You know, kind of the role is to get in there and – you, you got to yeah. figure out exactly how to do stuff, right? Get your yeah, hands it is. And especially when it's a, a very tactile skill that I haven't done before, you know, like suturing, I'm, you, I'm just going to mess it up. But I think it takes a unique person to evolve the umbilical cord. <laughs> you don't know your own strength. We all have stories <laughs> like that. You know, moving along to something that I suspect you'd be good at, what uh, research yeah. did you do or articles have you been involved in writing? So some medical students get really involved in more, um, maybe, maybe a hard science or a hard lab or really um, kind of intense clinical research. Mine have been a little bit different. So my research experience is, so I'm doing a radiology one right now where we're preparing an educational exhibit or like a poster for a radiology conference. And it's actually concerning um, MRI and women with what's called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. Um, so radiology is a major interest of mine. And anyways, I really like the, the research lead and he's been kind of a good mentor to me for that so that was that's been a really good opportunity the other thing is I'm doing a chart review for a urologist and the question I think you two might find interesting is um, they're doing a chart review and we're contacting patients asking the question what are some of the reasons why patients don't follow up following major urology surgery and I really actually enjoyed that research because hearing patient responses is really interesting I think you know, you two would know more than me, but in medicine, sometimes we kind of think like, ah, this patient's not doing what's best for them. You know, they're not coming to their follow-up appointment, like we said. But there's all kinds of reasons. You know, it's, it's not just apathy or laziness or something, all kinds. Um, so that's been a really eye-opening project. The thing I think I'm most interested in, though, and I know you two know this well, I know I've talked about it before, is, um, is ethics research. Just reading moral philosophy and theology is kind of how I relax. It's kind of my happy place, as my wife says. And um, so I've been doing more research to help expand the Catholic Medical Conscience app that the CMA made. So that's that you made the CMA approved. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to say, you can you could take a little more credit for that. I, I know you got a lot of hours into that. And how do, well, how do listeners find you. that app? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I'll just plug it shamelessly. It's the Catholic Medical Conscience app. And it's on Apple and Google Play Store. And it's totally free. And it's it's designed to help especially doctors and nurses form their conscience. And it will help to bring the Catholic moral and intellectual tradition to the users in the hospital. But yeah, Catholic Medical Conscience Conscience app. app. One more question before we Mm -hmm. take our, our break. And that is, what do you have to give up to live the life of a medical student and do it well? So when I was thinking about this question, I was actually, so I had asked Margaret about that, my wife Margaret about this earlier. And so I have been so fortunate with my third year because usually I think most medical students would say time just because the amount of time in a week required to get a quality medical education is insane. And I think a lot of them, especially this third year, and I'm, I'm going to have some more of this, I think in my fourth year, really have to give up a lot of free time. 
Um, and when it comes to, you know, those of us with families, um, I have to give up a lot of family time. Um, now, especially when the hours get weird. Now, again, we, we've been over how fortunate I've been my third year, right? Um, but then again, we look at weekly hours, oh, 50 hours a week, easy, right? When a lot of people really truly max out at 40 hours, and that's a big difference. So I think time. I think. Brendan, we're going to take a break now here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. We'll be back in a moment. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor today talking to Brendan Radigan, a rising fourth-year medical student. And Brendan, one of the things that we love talking about on Dr. Doctor and pretty much the main thing everybody's talking about right now is COVID. Okay, so a small, somewhat local event took place at the end of your third year we call COVID. How, how did this impact your educational experience and, and that of your peers? Oh, man. Huge, okay, huge impact, as you both know. Um, so third year, what's third year for? It's getting practical clinical experiences. So doing virtual practical experiences is hard. <laughs> that would be an oxymoron. <laughs> virtual and practical are somewhat, uh, don't connect on the Venn diagram. Uh, it, so, it sounds like you must have learned your rectal exams virtually. <laughs> I can think of all sorts Just of like shaking hands. Yeah. You know? That's right. I'm really good at them now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Virtual suturing too. I, I never mess up when I do it virtually. <laughs> Uh, so that was hard. I mean, that's a, that's a training challenge, you know. Uh, I think Marion responded as well as they could, really, and that's to try to get us some clinical knowledge and learning, you know, training to think like a doctor during the two to three or the three months we had really away from the hospital. Um, but it's hard to try. I mean, you just can't train clinical skills virtually. So were you home that whole time, or did you actually go into an office or hospital once in a while? I was home. From when to when? Yeah, so, so step, United States Medical Licensing Exam, step two was for me at the end of June. So the actual Marion required clinical tasks never took more than five hours in a day. Um, and the rest of the time was typically all step two studying for me. You guys are all going to have really good test scores, I think, because I, I remember <laughs> a lot of times sweating it out, doing something, thinking I should be studying right now, but why, why am I forced to do this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you can't make excuses. If I get a better score than you, Dr. Malali, you can't have that excuse. <laughs> so, Brendan, you didn't spend any time with patients from mid-March until the end of June. Is that what I'm hearing? That's right. Yeah, that was really sad. So, are you with patients now? Yes. Yes, so I'm on day two, back in action. So the students have been released into the local hospital. <laughs> Release them into the wild, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm doing cardiology this month, which I've always really enjoyed academically, learning about heart physiology and everything. And I'm really enjoying it so far. Yeah, for sure. So big Good to be question, back. third year is kind of the time when students make the decision what they're going to be when they grow up. If they grow up. So how has that process gone for you? Oh, crazy. It's a crazy ride. Um, so I came into medicine thinking I, I thought I wanted to do something in the emergency department. I thought I loved the, uh, you know, more high acuity. Uh, I didn't think I wanted to manage chronic patients chronically, but you know, what do I know? Coming into medical school, I really didn't know anything about what I wanted to do or what the options were even. Then it took a real big turn when I started to realize I love acuity, but I really love diagnostics and high science. 
um, really getting time to figure things out, not really something maybe a lot of ED physicians get. Um, so I thought I wanted to do internal medicine and then critical care and end up in the ICU somewhere. Not as a patient. Um, not as a patient, please, <laughs> Lord. Um, but it's actually a most, my most recent, and I think this is going to stick with me and be the long-lasting entrance interest for me, is I think I want to do diagnostic radiology. Wow. But the, main, the name of the game, I think, for third year is having all these different kinds of experiences and kind of being in that angsty, Lord, what do you want from me discernment phase, um, which is something I'm still, ever since discerning vocational priesthood in, in college, I still don't, I don't know if anyone ever feels like they're awesome at it, but I really want to be much better at discerning where God's leading me professionally. Um, but based on a number of different factors, I think I really want to do diagnostic radiology, and I think that's going to stick and last. And what is the importance for you of having a mentor who's a faithful Catholic in that specialty? Uh, it's super important. I, I mean, so it's hard to distinguish between loving a physician and loving the specialty. Yes. Uh, yeah. I know, Dr. McGovern, you've talked a lot about this, right? Yes. You, you, you love family doctors. and But not family medicine. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so it's really important, I think, to have a mentor to help guide this process of what are you interested in, what do you like, who are you as a person, um, because really the month-long experience is really fleeting. Um, if you had a great experience, you know, the physician lets you do a lot of procedures or something, it's easy to get really excited. Um, and that can kind of steer you away from maybe the more stable, long-lasting specialty that I should really be pursuing, you know? Um, so super important to have a mentor, yeah. So what is it you particularly enjoy about diagnostic radiology? I think it's, I think it's the high diagnostics of it. I, I think coming to medical school, I don't know how many students are like this, but they kind of want to be Dr. House a little bit, you know, like <laughs> just sit in there. You know, sit in their chair and tell their minions, oh, no, it's this. I know everything. And I know it's this, you know. But, you know, joking aside, I think for me, I think the biggest satisfaction in medicine is diagnostics. Figuring out what somebody has. Figuring out what somebody has. And for a lot of people, it's not that. You know, for, for a lot of my friends, it's really the satisfaction of watching a patient get better. And I love that. I do really love that. But as far as what the thrill of medicine is for me, I think it's in diagnostics. And in radiology, I think it's, that's a unique experience in radiology where that is the pr kind of the major focus of the field. Um, and sorry to maybe get a little tangential on how excited I am about it, but <laughs> I, I do love the science of it is amazing. I mean, even just holding... I think a lot of listeners have the experience of looking at a, you know, anatomy scan or an obstetric ultrasound or something. It's incredible. And that just has not worn off. I have just not gotten used to that yet. It is incredible to me. Thanks be to God. Brendan, another subject you're very interested in is bioethics. And even though you're at a Catholic mm -hmm. medical school, you've run into some challenges, haven't you? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, um, so I don't think I've had the privilege of having a really outstanding Christian moral formation while in medical school. I think few students get that, right? Um, I was looking forward to having some of that at Marion, but we were taught primarily the mainstream medicine paradigm, which is to say, and I, I'll spare listeners, I think, much, much of the detail, but really where I think autonomy is king, right? So whatever the patient wants will tend to drive all of our moral decision-making. Certainly that informs the abortion debate, unfortunately, right? Um, so we weren't really given a great formation in Beatitude and Sermon on the Mount and you know, Thomistic virtue ethics and all of the things that are really uniquely Christian 
Um, so I've, I've definitely had to do my own research there to make sure that I'm bringing Jesus Christ into medicine. Um, now, so that's in the learning side. On the clinical side, I've also had some challenges, as I know many medical students do, with you know having to opt out of IUD placements and not, you know, I have to inform my attending that I won't prescribe contraception, and that's always a whole thing. Um, how how has that, that gone for you? Because yeah. that that leads to a lot of angst. I know when I when I was a medical student, that was a huge thing where you're. I kind of felt for years I was walking on eggshells because so much of your grading is subjective and mm. not just based on the test. Um, mm-hmm. t- tell us about your experience with that. So relativism has honestly been a little bit of a friend in this regard because sometimes <laughs> residents or, or attendings will think like, oh yeah, well, you do you, Brendan. You don't prescribe contraception and match up to you. So <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't take long, you know, for us to get, oh, my gosh, relativism. This needs to go. But so to answer your question, Dr. Mullally, I think, I think usually they're pretty accommodating. They kind of think like, oh, everyone's moral compass is their own, and this is his, and that's fine. Um, I, do like, I do like getting into the the moral tension and the moral discussions of this when it's done correctly, but it's never like, Oh, Brenda, tell me more about why you think contraception is not God's plan for marriage and fertility. No one's going to ask me like that. It's going to be more like, Oh, so you think everybody should have 20 kids, you know, kind of snidely like that. And that's not the time for a, for a good discussion of natural law, right? Um, Probably a lot of it happens on the fly too, because you're kind of just going through your day and then it's like, oh, you're up next, you know? <laughs> That's right. All right, Brendan, your turn to insert the IUD. Oh, you know, while we're in the patient room, it's not. Surprise! not ideal. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's not my turn, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so some, some good, some bad, and in, in, in um, how I've had to work through that in the clinic. Now, Brendan, in preparing for this, you mentioned something ethics-wise called principalism. I mm-hmm. don't know what that word means. Can you tell me and our listeners? Yes, this is one of my uh, this is one of my academic crusades. I think um, <laughs> so. The new paradigm, kind of the governing way of thinking about ethics, and this is what's going to be taught in the medical school textbooks on ethics is the moral philosophy called principalism. Really what that is, is that there are these governing four principles, clusters of principles that guide ethical decision-making autonomy, justice, uh, beneficence, and non-maleficence. And in each moral dilemma, each physician should, use these principles and try to apply it in their unique context, which usually sometimes Catholic physicians go like, Oh, I can talk about human dignity in the context of autonomy. You know, I'll just, I'll just translate and, and, and speak the Christian truth in this moral paradigm. But I know you two have noticed a major problem with principalism and that it has no reference to God Jesus Christ, the Beatitudes, the virtues, the fruits of the Spirit, or anything really uniquely Christian, and just saying four words really leaves it open to abuse. You know, you can talk about justice and argue for anything really you want. It's just kind of a word. Um, so it's not a. Sometimes, if if I were, if I did have the time and expertise, I think to write on this and publish, I would argue a criticism of this view calling it the four magic words because that really <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. Um, so that's principalism. I think in, if I were to sum it up in one sentence, four magic words that are helped to guide secular ethics discussions. It, it's hard to, to have those principles, but no measuring stick or no form yes. to aim for. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Brendan year four, what are you looking forward to most this year? I think, I think first and foremost, I'm excited to match into a residency program and be able to look forward into 
specialty training. Um, but the more proximate uh, goal and kind of hope of mine is independence in, in the hospital, I think. I, I am, I've had a, too many, and I'm a choleric, you know, any shadowing experience is too much of a, of a shadowing experience. Um, All three of us on so, this are yeah. clerics. Yeah. yeah. I know exactly how you feel. Yeah. yeah. So I was, I'm kind of a letdown on how much shadowing I've done third year. And I'm really looking forward to the independence of fourth year where I'm treated with much more autonomy. Autonomy with responsibility. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I love that. I love having the burden of being the the person to make a decision. And maybe that's coming from a little bit of the army formation. But I want to be the guy who has to make the decision and has to figure it out and has to move with the plan. Um, so hopefully, I get more of that fourth year. So you mentioned matching in a residency. That's going to be shockingly altered this year because normally you're doing a lot of away rotations and that apparently yeah. is not allowed this year. Is that right? Yes. So there's these new recommendations by this commission with a lot of letters and really we should only medical students and they recommend that residency programs only take students who really need the rotation to satisfy a graduation requirement or something like that. Yes. So a lot of big programs, and um, right now, Indiana University is one of them, are not taking any visiting students for a number of reasons that are probably, some, most of them are probably prudent, right? But um, the fallout of that is students who have kind of been planning on those rotations or who really want to see what a program's all about, we're going to have to be really creative in figuring that information out because we can't actually go to the site and talk to the people and get a feel for the program culture and everything like that. So big impact there for sure. How, how are you planning to overcome those obstacles? So one of the major problems here is like a virtual interview, which I think everyone recognizes is just not ideal. Um, not even close to ideal. One of the things I'm going to try to do is I just have to have more reliable information about the program. So in my waiting of how much I like a program, I'm going to have to wait much more knowing somebody in there who can give me reliable information. So for example, I have friends at, in, a, in Indiana University programs, for example, rather than you know reading their website or looking at their program um, rotation schedule or something like that, I'm going to have to even more weight what my friend says about who, what they're all about, what the intendings are like, how important teaching is to them, that sort of thing. Um, so in programs, I mean, what about programs where I don't know anybody? I'm kind of at a loss. If they don't let me visit there, especially Margaret, you know, if Margaret's not allowed to visit there and see what she likes about it, what she doesn't like, meet the residents and their wives, hear about, hear about the, um, the call schedules and everything like that. It's going to be so hard for us to make an informed decision as a couple. But knowing somebody on the inside is going to be so important for me moving forward. Now that you've got 75% of medical school under the belt, what advice would you have for um, college students, high school students, or parents of those students who are considering attending medical school? So first thing I think is I, medicine is so fascinating and there's so many wonderful things about the human being that God has made in the intricacy and complexities. I think though, one of the biggest things that gets overlooked is longevity of training. So if I think this is, will be good counsel for the 21-year-old who is just you know, thinking, well, should I apply to medical school or not? What does God want for me? Well, if you're a 21-year-old you know, uh, woman, for example, and you see yourself getting married at 22 and having lots of children early, this <laughs> needs to be thought about, that your training at a minimum will be seven years, and we're, I mean, at a minimum, 40 hours a week. Um, and that's usually not perfect for raising a, you know, large, big family. Um, 
with lots of young children. Same thing for men. If, if, you know, if it's like, if you're Mr. If you want to be Mr. Stable dad, you got to know that it's seven years of sometimes nights, sometimes weekends. And that's really important to discern. So in vocation discernment, I think it's going to be really important for everybody to take a mature, calm, prudent look. What does God want for me now? And what is he going to want for me for the next seven, 10 years? Because the haul is extremely long. Not to mention, I am, you know, hundreds, I'm going to be way more than $100,000 in debt. And you're in too far. <laughs> you can't, there's no turning back at your four. Um, so think about that before choosing to apply and attend and send that first check to medical school. Can I commit seven years to this life? Brendan, you, you bring up a great point in, in your, your advice and recommendations. You talk about your vocation as a husband and a father. I think there's people out there who are trying to decide if they want to get married and start a family or go to medical school or endeavor to do both. What would you say to them? It's certainly doable if the couple's on it. I think, I think if the couple together knows that, that the sacrifices will be had and this is what is best for the family, go for it. You know, I think it is, it is a super prudent thing for a family to do. However, I think a big mistake we, in all couples, I still make this mistake in my marriage, you know, where, um, we just kind of commit to something without both being 100% on the same page. And that, that is not a mistake to be made with something like $200,000 of debt and eight years of busy training that can, that mistake cannot be made. Um, so especially young, I say young, I'm 28, but I mean, younger men like and women, 22 years old, they need to come together and decide this together, that this is right for the family. Um, and once, if that decision is made, I think it can totally work. Brendan, 30 seconds, last uh, message you want to leave with listeners. Christ is risen. <laughs> Indeed, awesome. he's risen. Need we say more? No, I'm, I'm excited to be back in the hospital. Um, I'm really, I'm really excited for the learning to keep kind of taking off. And I think very, I, and I know training is very long term, but I'm really, I feel like I'm getting there where I can start to actually talk and act and be a good doctor. And that is super fulfilling about having completed third year. Brendan Radican, well, thank you for being with us for year three. We look forward to interviewing you next June uh, after year four. God be with you in this final year of medical school. And we'll be back Thanks, with, with the medical trivia question after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. So, it's pretty straightforward. The answer is between, I guess, one and a hundred. What percentage of applicants to allopathic medical schools where you get an MD degree were accepted last year? Andrew, you see the number. Surprising? Not surprising. I, I honestly thought it was worse. From I guess it felt worse <laughs> going through it. I think the answer is 41%, right, Tom? 41%. Uh, and vet school, last I looked, was 55%. So it is harder to get into medical school than vet school. That's one of the, the myths that I've heard before, that vet school is harder to get into. Well, it's definitely, they're both pretty, pretty hard. And I always felt that medical school was a huge challenge, but the biggest challenge is getting in and kind of saying your prayers and having somebody based on a test score and a resume and a short interview, give you a chance, you know? And how many medical schools did the average medical school applicant apply to? Before giving the answer, how many did you apply to, Andrew? You know, I think I applied to three or maybe four. It, there's this big thing about really they only accept people in state for the most part, most med schools. And so I applied to the in-state ones. Okay. I applied to seven. Um, okay. The answer is 16. That's see, that's incredible to me, but honestly, I think as things get continue to get kind of more and more competitive, that's what you have to do. You got to cast a wide net. And um, I, I think if you don't, if you don't cast a wide enough net, you might miss out. What was the number one thing that struck you in Brendan's interview? 
You know, I was really impressed when he told me that he was not tired, too tired at <laughs> all during his third believe year. believe it. When I, when I was a, a third year student, they made a big deal because they were just starting these time, these time limitations. And they made a, a big deal of saying that the time limitations applied to residents and not medical students. Ouch. <laughs> well, I remember I was practic almost failed in my plastic surgery rotation my third year. That's why I had instead of general surgery. And I had, uh, because I had such a hard time staying awake without sleep. Oh, yeah. It wasn't I, because I, of an attitude or lack of knowledge. And I, I think, especially traditionally, they've, they've always thought it's, you know, just kind of this process. They put you through the meat grinder and hope you come out stronger for it. But I don't know, you definitely come out more tired for it. Brennan seems to be doing pretty good. I, I kind of wonder if there's something to this getting regular sleep. Uh, I second that notion. And then also shocked at the way COVID really reduced their amount of skill development uh, the last oh, three yeah. months. Well, we, we talk in other episodes about the negative side effects of COVID, um, intentional and unintentional. You got to wonder what, what kind of uphill battle these students are going to be facing Ooh, when they start residency. That is a great point, Andrew. I ha that is an excellent point. And on that note, we want to thank you for being with us, listening to another episode of our, our crazy uh, free-for-all known as Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and official <laughs> radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.